are continuing on this morning in the series that we launched a couple weeks ago. Um, had a little break with Tom, uh, figuring out how to minister from our greatest pain. Um, and, and now we're going to go back to this idea of, of uh, living uh, the, the good life, living the dream. And the reason that I, I decided to use this as a sermon topic was out of recognition that we just hear this term used so much today. It just seems to be the, the kind of the byword that everybody's striving for. They want to they live the dream. And, and that means in our understanding that, you know, things are going really well. Our health is good. Our finances are good. Our relationships are good. Our, jo- our jobs are good. And, and so we're, we're just sort of living uh, the, the kind of life that we would, would so much like to live. That's what it seems like we strive for. That's the kind of the goal, at least our world seems to hold out in front of us. And yet, it it seems to me uh, that for at least some, uh, perhaps many, uh, that that the reality is that we're not really um, living the dream as much as we are dreaming the dream. We have the the desires for that. We wanna we wanna try to get to that point, but we're we're not quite there for all kinds of reasons. Maybe our finances are, are not quite where we would like to be. Maybe there's a little stress and strain in our relationships. Maybe our job environment's not uh, quite all that we would hope it to be. And so we, we have this aspiration. We have this, this desire to pursue that, but, but we're not quite there. And so we're really just kind of dreaming the dream. And what I've also experienced is not only is this true in our society in general, but often that's true in the lives of Christ followers. We have this goal. We have this... Um, this ideal that we want to pursue of being close with God, of having that, that, that intimacy where we're one in heart and mind with him. But we're not quite there yet. And once more, for a variety of reasons, um, maybe our prayer time isn't as much as we would like it to be, or maybe we just don't seem to be able to carve out the opportunities to spend reading God's word, whatever it might be. So how do we change that? How do we get from dreaming the dream to living the dream. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at. That's what we started a couple of weeks ago with a, a little bit of an introduction is just a quick recap since it's, it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, you, you may recall that we revisited that thought that we've talked about several times of the importance of us trying to move from that place of being simply a passive a believer, someone um, who meets the, the bare minimum requirements of being a Christ follower, who barely gets their foot in, in the door of heaven, to, uh, to being an individual who's more vibrant in their walk. A vibrant disciple is how we describe it. And vibrant in the sense that they're actively engaged in, in a day-to-day pursuit of Jesus and drawing closer to him. And we made mention of the fact that, that often you can identify these people um, as they're a part of our lives. They're the individuals who are in a place of living out the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, they're the individuals who, who are really wanting to, not, not feeling guilted into it, but who, who really want to thank God for the blessings that they enjoy, to spend time in worship of him. They're the, they're the ones who want to have that opportunity to tell others about Jesus, what kind of difference he's made in, in your life or my life, and, and then how they can come to know him as well. And they're the kind of individuals who, who not only want to continue to grow in their own walk with God, but are open and desirous of using whatever gifts or talents or abilities that God has given them to, uh, to help um, equip and empower and encourage people. Uh, to go deeper in, in their walks with God. 
And, and we use as an example, and for all of that, uh, the prophet Isaiah, you may remember, uh, Isaiah had this vision of being in God's presence. And at the end of that vision, uh, God said, who can we send uh, to go into the world to, to help my kingdom grow, to, uh, to proclaim uh, the, the message I want sent? Who is it that, that we can send? And Isaiah, without flinching, without a hesitation, said, send me. Use me, I'm, I'm your man, God. And how that's the thing that we strive for, uh, to get to the point where we have that same kind of response to God's appeal in our lives. Well, that was what we looked about uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. We're going to continue on really in an introductive, uh, introductory mode this morning. Um, and then next week, we'll sort of look, start looking at the individual pieces of that. Uh, but I want to continue on with where we were at uh, two weeks ago uh, with an additional point that I think we need to have as, as sort of laying that foundation. And it's, it's this reality that's it's this acknowledgement that everything rises and falls on disciples. Certainly that's true in the church. I would suggest that it's also true in our society, especially in, in this country of ours, but that's probably another sermon for another time. But in terms of the church, I, I think I can say uh, pretty clearly and boldly that, that the, the more that we have individuals who are committed to being disciples, the stronger their walk and pursuit of discipleship in their lives, the stronger the church is. And so everything rises and falls on that. If you've got a, a, a church that's filled with disciples, the, the church thrives. If you don't have very many disciples, not, not so good. Uh, imagine, uh, if you would, that... Um, that we didn't have that to be the case, that it was more a place that was just filled with, with spiritual babes. Now, we know as a church that part of our responsibility, part of our job from God is to be a place that helps young, new Christians grow in their faith. That's a part of why God's placed us here. God's placed us here to be a place where, where individuals can come that maybe haven't made that decision to be Christ followers. They're still checking things out. They've still got some questions that they're wrestling with. That's exactly uh, what we want people to, to bring with them when they come to church. That's a part of what the church is supposed to be. And we read about that. We're, we're told about that in the words of, of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he's, he's reflecting back, thinking back to a, a visit he had had earlier with the believers in Thessalonica. And he has this to say about that initial visit. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we care for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with not only to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And, and what a precious image and picture that paints for us uh, of, of a mother with a, an, an infant or a, a toddler, a little one, and, and, and think of how moms um, care for and, and love and nurture uh, those little ones that are there in, in their lives. That's what God calls us to do with those who are, are brand new Christians in their faith, to come alongside and to, to love and to nurture them as well. But what would happen if that was all that we had in the church was these <clears throat> little newborn uh, individuals in, in the faith, these babes in Christ. So imagine instead of the, the, the church pews that we had, all we had were, were cribs. Uh, imagine instead of Sunday school classes, we, uh, we just had nurseries. Imagine instead of the gym uh, that we just had a big, huge a toddler room. Now, there'd be lots of energy there, to be sure. 
But if there was no one there to care for these little ones, if there was no one there to, to change them or to feed them or to change them or to teach them or to change them or um, oh, we'd be in trouble. Oh, we need to make sure as, as the church that we have a, a, a foundation of, of, you might say, adult Christians or mature Christians in the faith who, who can be there to care and come alongside and, and, and nurture those. And if we don't have that, then as a church, we struggle. Uh, any church, if that's the case, they, they struggle with that. I, I think this is what uh, the writer of Hebrews had in mind in Hebrews 5 when he wrote these words. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you, to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You're still at a point where you need milk. You're not ready yet for solid food. And in too many cases in, in the world today, I, I think that's descriptive of the church. It hasn't moved beyond that place of, of, of initial introduction to Jesus, which is so exciting in our lives. We love that. But that's not where God wants us to stop. He wants us to continue to grow. And if that, that doesn't happen, then we become, uh, as is described here, still on milk when we should have moved uh, to solid uh, kind of food. Another way of thinking this, another analogy uh, to convey this idea is, is think of our physical bodies. You know, scripture talks a lot about the church and compares it to a physical body. Now, if we injure that body, if there's a part of it that's vulnerable, um, maybe we sprain an ankle or we uh, whack our elbow or if we even break a bone, um, if the rest of the body is healthy and strong, it can compensate for that. It can, it can come alongside that injury until the, the body restores itself and the body that God's created to some wonderful ways to be able to do that. So maybe you're a, an individual that's on, a, uh, on crutches like that, but you know you're going to get better. On the other hand, if you have a body that's been really almost completely broken, maybe you've been in a massive traffic accident and you're all on uh, just more broken bones than they can count, uh, internal organs are in trouble, um, it's questionable what's going to happen. At best, you're looking at a very prolonged recovery period. And if, if there's more damaged parts to the body that they can't uh, recover, you might even be looking at death. We need to have that strong part of the body. We need to have that, that, that maturity that's there in order for us uh, to thrive and, and be all that God would desire for us uh, to be as, as a church. And for that to happen, um, we need to make sure that the, the church is always spiritually growing, that it's developing, that it's maturing. We do that as we engage our minds. We do that as we engage our hearts. We, we do that as we engage our hands in, in, in various good works and actions done before God. And so as we think about the mind, um, we're reminded of Paul's words in, in Romans 12 where he says this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's what we're striving for. I, I think for most of us, we want to we be more than we are now. We want to be all that God would call us to be. We want to be transformed by what? By the renewing of our minds. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
And we do that. We allow this transformation to take place as we focus more and more on God and less and less on the, the things of this world. Again, Paul helps us in that with these words in Colossians 3. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And I think we've all experienced that in our life. We, we know what it is to set our minds on something and sort of be absorbed by that. And so if we do that with things of the world, uh, maybe it's uh, we're really caught up in the baseball season or football when that comes along or basketball. Maybe we're really into quilting or maybe uh, we love gardening or maybe it's something like that. And, and that's all we think about all the time. That, that sort of becomes what our life revolves around. And those things aren't bad. But God calls us to, to make sure that our minds are focused more on him. On his truths, on his revelations, on, uh, on, the, on the gifts that he's offered to us. And if that's where our attention is, if that's where our thoughts are, if that's what our, our thinking is directed toward, then we find that just sort of a natural outgrowth is that, that life that is more honoring and, and praising to God. So we need, to, we need to engage our minds in that process. We need to engage our hearts in that process. In Psalm 42, we have a, a, a wonderful passage by David, which is really a psalm of lament. Um, for most of the psalm, he's talking about, uh, things aren't going great, God. I don't understand why uh, my enemies are prospering. I don't understand why I'm having to face these hardships. I don't understand why you haven't come a, alongside me. And I got to tell you, I love that part of Psalms. I love the honesty and, and candidness of the writer of Psalms because we've all been at the place that the psalmist is writing. But at the very beginning of that psalm, before he gets into any of that, he lays a foundation with the very first verse. And this is what he has to say in, in Psalm 42:1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. Yeah, there's things I don't understand. There, there's things I would wish would be different in my life. I wish there wasn't quite so much pain and confusion, God. But despite all that, you're the one that I look to. You're the one that my heart yearns for. Just as a, a, a tired and, and fatigued ear yearns for the water in the stream, my soul yearns for you, Father. So we need to engage our minds. We need to engage our hearts. And then finally, we need to engage our hands. We need to, to put that faith into action as sometimes is described. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in the fifth chapter, Jesus is finishing up the Beatitudes. And, and, you know, the Beatitudes are those things where blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. It's that, that section of Scripture. And it's really that part of God's word where he's saying, if you pursue the things of God, life is so much better than if you pursue the things of the world. And at the, at the very end of those Beatitudes, he has this word of counsel for us. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Good deeds. What are those? Well, just like it sounds like. Those actions that we undertake that benefit others. Maybe it's helping somebody with yard work. Maybe it's taking someone to a doctor's appointment. Maybe it's helping someone figure out their, their finances. The, the list is endless on things that we can do to come alongside that. But part of the key in doing that is that very last part. Who gets the credit? Who's uplifted as a result of those actions? Is it us? Are we looking for the pat on the back? Yay, Brett, thanks so much. I really appreciate what you did. No, the one that's to be glorified is God. 
He's the one that's to be lifted up. I, you know, we appreciate the compliment and, and we can acknowledge that, but we can also add, you know, um, I'm doing this because I know that God loves you. And I just want to be sort of his extension here in this particular situation. So as we think about what it means to, uh, to be those, those individuals where, uh, where we rise and fall, where we're living that life of a discipleship, a part of it means engaging our mind, a part of it means engaging our hearts, a part of it means engaging our hands as well. There's an additional piece, though, as we lay this foundation, and it's this. I'll go beyond that. Uh, current generations are not blessed based on past generations. I think another piece as we think about moving from dreaming the dream to living the dream is we need to, to move beyond this uh, illusion that because God has uh, watched over and been present with those in, in previous generations that he's obligated, uh, that, that he has no choice but to bless us as well. And surely it seems to me that, that uh, that's something I, I, I sense within the church today, that there is that expectation that God is going to do for us what he has done for others. Now, if we look back to the, the lives of previous generations, I think there's a good reason God blessed them. They were men and women who oftentimes were pursuing an existence of righteousness. They were ones who were engaged in that, that act of sanctification where the, the Holy Spirit was continuously filling them and changing them, transforming them, as we talked about just a, a moment ago. And because of their faithfulness, God acknowledged that and rewarded them and, and the churches that, that they're a part of. But we can't presume that just because they live those kinds of lives that God's going to instill that same blessing on us. You see, when we do that, what we end up doing really is just sort of coasting along. When we're trying to live on the laurels, the, the, the achievements of others, we're just coasting along. And as we've said repeatedly in the past, there's only one way to coast, and that's downhill. For us to, to live in the, in the manner that God wants us to, for us to, to be those people that God would desire of us. What we have to do is we have to, to live ourselves that kind of life that God calls us to and not just trust in what has happened in the lives of others. You know, one of the things we know about God is that he is an incredibly compassionate and incredibly gracious and incredibly um, um, loving, patient uh, God. But he's not a fool. Uh, we read in the book of, of Galatians uh, these words, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Oh, the more that we live that life that God calls to, the more that we'll, we'll be able to come alongside, to be filled with the Spirit and enjoy all of those things that God wants us to know. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a works-based uh, faith that we have. Uh, we get into heaven because of God's grace. It's a gift that's given to us. But Scripture is also equally clear that it does make a difference, the kind of lives that we live. He calls us to live lives of faithfulness to him. He calls us to live lives where we're pursuing righteousness. And as his word tells us, um, the more that we engage in those things, the more that we pursue God, uh, the more that we're going to reap uh, the benefits that he has in store for us. Uh, the, the kind of life, again, that I think we desire to see.
And, and one of the best examples, at least in my mind, of, of seeing how this is demonstrated is, is as we look at the, the original people of God, the Jews. You remember how God formed this nation back in Old Testament times. At one point, he leads them out of slavery uh, from the Egyptians. They become his people. They become his nation. Um, initially, they're under a theocracy where he's in charge, but eh, they're not real excited about that idea. And so uh, they petition God for him to bring in a king into their lives. He does that, and that sort of things head south from that point forward. So much so that the, the Jews end up splitting into two different nations, uh, the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel. And as we look at the story of those two nations, we look at the, the lives of the kings and of the, the kingdoms that they reigned over. One of the things that is interesting is to see that it's actually fairly rare for uh, one kingdom uh, to follow in the same, um, the same level, the same commitment, the same emphasis that the previous one did. So I'm not explaining that very well. Let me give you something more tangible. So we see the example of, of a great king, a good king, a godly king uh, named Jehoshaphat. But following him are another a king or two and, and kingdoms that are not so godlike in their actions. Oh, we see a, a king named Jotham followed by one or two bad kings. We see a king named Hezekiah, a good king, followed by one or two bad kings. We see a, a good king named Josiah followed by one or two bad kings. In fact, the ratio is about two to one, two bad kings for every one king that we see. And all of this simply bears testimony to the fact that just because you're, you had a good king before doesn't mean that you're going to live the way that God would call you to. Instead, each king and each kingdom had to decide for themselves the path that they would follow. For those that pursued God and his ways, they prospered. For those that did not, they bore the consequences of that as well. And I believe the same thing is true for us uh, here in America in 2021. And in fact, it seems to me that we're at somewhat of a crossroads in our life in terms of our spiritual relationship with God. In fact, if I'm completely honest with you, I think we've moved past that crossroads and we are traveling down the wrong road. Now, I don't think we're so far down the wrong road that it's, that it's uh, irreconcilable. I think we can still turn things around. But I think it's going to take a very deliberate effort. Because if we don't do that, if we continue on the, the path that we're on now, if we remain unwilling to take a stand for biblical principles, if we remain unwilling to live out in our lives the things that God calls us to, if we remain unwilling to be defenders of the faith, then I think ultimately what we're going to see is, is the downfall of our nation. Now, I wouldn't say that we'll necessarily cease to exist, but I think we'll be a mere shadow of what we were in years past when we were more committed in being followers of Jesus Christ. Now, as you hear that, some of you may be saying, oh, Pastor, do you really think that? I mean, that's a little drastic, isn't it? Aren't you being just a tad dramatic there? I mean, this is the United States we're talking about. We're too big. We're too powerful. We're too wealthy uh, for us to experience a downfall. And I hope you're right. But I can't help if that's not the same thinking, the same mentality, that those who, who lived in previous great 
empires and civilizations thought as well. If it's not the, the same kind of thinking that the Egyptians and, and the Persians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Mongols and the Ottomans and others all thought at one point or another, only to see their, their nation, the empire, dissolve. As we think about what it is that God has called us to be, as we think about the sort of foundation that needs to be in place, a part of it is that we, we need to acknowledge that, that it's the strength of the disciples that will set the tone for the church. And again, I would say even beyond the church for our country. I think we need to understand that as we, we desire to, to prosper and be all that God would have us to be, it, it's going to be based on the decisions we make, not on what has happened in previous generations, which really kind of leads me to my third point here, um, and that is this, that each Christian, each believer, each Christ follower is responsible for learning and living God's truths. We each have to make that decision in our own lives. We have to decide the path that we're going to go down. Uh, in uh, the, the, something called the high priestly prayer, which is a, a prayer that Jesus had just before he went to the cross. He spent some time talking to God, and a part of that conversation with God was Jesus' petition on behalf of his followers. And it's interesting, he wasn't just speaking about the followers that were alive then. He specifically also identifies the followers that were yet to come. That's you, and that's me. And a part of what he had to say is, a, is, a, is, is one portion of that prayer was this. Sanctify them, sanctify us by the truth. For your word is truth. We live in an age where it seems like um, it's so hard for us to, to, to identify what truth is anymore because everything has become relative. And I mean everything has become Relative. That's what the world would teach. That's what the world would promote. And yet that's not what God teaches us. God teaches us there is truth. There's absolute truth. And where do we find that? We find that in his word. We find that as we take time to, to look and reflect on and, and read and meditate upon what God has given to us uh, throughout uh, the ages. We can have that foundation, but, but only as we are familiar with and choose to live out those truths that God has given to us. And as we do that, we need to keep in mind that, that the reason that we pursue these things, the reason that we strive for these things is, is why? Well, let's see what Scripture says. Whatever you do in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Why do we do these things? Do we do it so our, our, our bank account will grow? Do we do it because we want a bigger house? Do we do, we do it because we're uh, looking for a, a higher title in the company in which we work or, or whatever it might be? No. We do it because we love Jesus. We do it because we want to be pleasing to God. We do it because we, we want to see his kingdom thrive and grow and prosper. That's why we do it. So as I wrap up sort of this introduction piece, um, if I had to, to put it all in, in, in one passage or one reference, the thing that came to mind was that, that parable that we read about of the talents. Now it is a parable, so uh, not likely 25, um, 
but it's a story that has a rich lesson to us. We read about it in Matthew 25, um, 14 through 30. And let me give you just a little uh, introduction to this as well. So you have this, this gentleman who's kind of the master, the, the owner, and he has uh, three servants that are a part of, of his household. He's going to be gone away. We're not sure why or how long, but he's going to be gone away for a while. And so he imparts to these three servants different portions of his wealth to try to, to, try to increase that wealth. So to one servant, he gives him five talents. Now, a talent in that day was the equivalent of 20 years wages. So we're talking about a sizable amount of money. To another servant, he gives two talents. And to a third servant, he gives one talent. And then he goes away. Again, we're not told how long he's, he's gone. But eventually he comes back. And we pick that up in verse 19. And I better put my glasses on. And in verse 19 of Matthew. You would think after all this time I would have that figured out. But... Um, in verse 19 of Matthew 25, we, we read this. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. He'd made five as the master was gone. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Obviously, the master is very pleased by what's happened here. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. The master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You notice the words are exactly the same. Even though one earned a whole lot more than the other, uh, the words of praise are exactly the same there. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talents in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I do not sow and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then at the very least, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. And then he said to those there, so take the talent from him, the one talent from him who has it and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. I'll leave you and I'll wrap up with this with just a, a couple of closing thoughts. One is that everybody's given a talent. Do you notice that? Some people are given five talents. Some people are given one talent. Uh, the, the people, the servants didn't get to decide that. That was uh, kind of up to the master. We know people in our lives who are five-talent people. Uh, some of us feel like a one-talent uh, in existence, but that's okay. No matter what the, the, the amount is, uh, it's been given to us by God, and so we can celebrate that. We have no reason to be envious of those that have gotten more. We take what God's given to us, and we, we find comfort and peace in that. 
But in addition to that, we also need to realize that whether we're a five-talent person or a one-talent person, that we have responsibility to use that talent, uh, to use it in, in way the implication is here to, to build up and strengthen God's kingdom, to do those things that are pleasing uh, to the master, to do those things that, uh, that allow the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to be uh, proclaimed. And so as you leave here this morning, I'll leave you with just a, a couple of things to chew on, to think about. What is the, the talent that God's given to you? Tom talked a little bit of this, about this last week when he talked about um, your uh, past experiences and your spiritual gifts and, and all of those kinds of things. What's the, the talent that God has given to you? And then the second question is, once you sort of get a handle on that, how are you using that for God's kingdom? Or maybe I should start with the question, are you using that for God's kingdom? Uh, presuming that that's the case, then how are you using that for God's kingdom? Because that's what being a disciple is about. That's what this whole sermon series, uh, Living the Dream, is going to help us to discover. How we can become and live out more and more who Jesus would have us to be this day and every day. Amen.